A scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Speed of God indeed. Now, I noticed that uh, JJ is not in the in the congregation today, or not in the pews. I don't know. JJ online? Oh, she's in nursery. Okay, well, uh, I wanted first of all to say thank you to JJ and all of you who did the big clean out over the last couple of days. And it's interesting to me that someone who's so connected into our church has been here for so long, and I have not asked JJ for permission to tell this story, so I hope she forgives me. But um, I remember talking to JJ um, and saying to her, just talking about going to presbytery. And she said, what? Are we Presbyterian? And uh, I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. You can hang out at North Point. You can be here for many, 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 many years and not know that we're affiliated with any sort of denomination or anything like that. And you know what? That's okay. I wouldn't want people to get hung up with labels and the label Presbyterianism and what that means. But what I hope you do know, and I hope, you ho I hope you have absorbed what has sunken in through osmosis over the years, if you sat in the pews, is some other key concepts, which I hope are not just part of even Presbyterianism. I hope you would hear them from every pulpit that you ever sit and listen to. And that is that we are all universally messed up puppies beyond all hope of fixing things we've got ourselves that we don't put our faith in our own towers of Babel. We don't try to build our own way to heaven. That's what got us in trouble in the fall and got us in trouble all through the Old Testament. And that complete and utter dependence on Christ for our salvation, sanctification, and glorification is necessary. And you probably haven't heard us use those words salvation, sanctification, glorification. And that's not because we don't think you are smart enough to know what those words mean. The reason we tend to move away from those words are because 
they have such a implication or interpretation, especially in our culture, of individualism, right? It's my salvation, my sanctification, my glorification. And whilst part of that is true, that process is an inherently the process of re-entering in to the original call of God for us to be his image bearers and go out into the, the world and do what he's called us to do. So there is a much bigger piece to that than some sort of individual transformation. It's the story of how our lives fit into God's big story of redemptive history. Now, I hope you've heard that so many times that if anyone asks you what the gospel is, you would go out and you would, you would say, that's what it is, that's what it is, that's what it is. And, and so if you've been here and listening to us say that, to us interpreting all of Scripture through those, that lens, this passage that we read today is hard to hear. We think that... It is only by God's grace that we are anything, that our works are but filthy rags. And yet we read this passage, particularly those middle verses, and we have a reaction to this strong sense of perfectionism and obedience that sits right in the middle of it. Now we have words for those, that reaction too. Anything, anything that smells like or suggests that works save us, we tend to label as works righteousness or legalism. So what do we do then? What do we do then when we come to a passage like this? And you know what? I'm just going to read it because it, it, especially those verses 3 to 7, they're hard to hear. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now when you hear that text, I don't know what you think. I don't know how you react to that. My first read of this passage is that the obedience I'm reading here really sucks. It's a great concept, but I'll never get it right. The perfectionism Paul is demanding here feels burdensome. It's oppressive. I can't do it. Perhaps like you, my, perhaps like me, your works righteousness alarms are going off. Your legalism alarm is going off. But this is in the Bible. This is in God's Word. We have to deal with this. We need to come to make sense of it. But there's good news. There is good news as we move into this passage, and that, and that is that verses 3 to 7 are sandwiched by verses 1 to 2 and verses 8 to 14, and there's context there that we need. Paul is not talking about the oppressive obedience of works righteousness. Paul's vision of obedience is actually incredibly beautiful here. So today we're going to look at the bookends or the bread of the sandwich first, then we're going to jump into the meat of the sandwich, the topic of obedience. So again, we're going to look first of all at the bread of the sandwich, the source of the obedience, if you like, verses 1 to 2 and then verses 8 to 18. And in the second half of the sermon, we're going to look at the meat of the sandwich, verses 3 to 7, the beauty of obedience. So let's jump in. The bread, the first piece of bread, verses 1 to 2. Now let me read it to you. 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, look how it begins. It doesn't say, in order to be. If you try hard enough, perhaps if you get this right, you will be dearly beloved children. It starts off with, as dearly beloved children. The starting place for this whole call to obedience is the assumption that we are already dearly beloved children. The starting place, the position is not earned, it is presumed, and from that, it's not earned by us, and from that we move into a place of obedience. And look at verse, the beginning of verse 2a. And walk in the way of obedience. Oh, it doesn't say obedience. It says walk in the way of love. Because you know what? As we read through this passage, we are going to see that the word love here and the word obedience are used synonymously. Now, not just any type of obedience, but the obedience that Paul is talking about in this text is a synonymous connection between walking in love and the obedience that we see in verses 3 to 7. And then it goes on in 2b to talk about, give us an example of that obedience slash love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. So we're seeing here that Christ's costly obedience to the Father was an actual fact, an expression of love. That obedience to the Father was love for the Father, was done out of love. So there's a connection here between obedience, which is done as an expression of love to the Father, uh, as an ex there is a connection, a direct uh, synonym of obedience with the idea of love of the Father. That is the way we express, Jesus expressed his love for the Father. So the first piece of bread that we're going to use to interpret this passage of obedience in the middle is we are dearly loved children. And obedience is God's love language. Let me say that again. We are dearly loved children and obedience is God's love language. Now, the problem with this is that there are poor parental models out there. In fact, every other family, except for the family of God as father and us as child, has dysfunction in it. Most of us, are, some of us are parents. All of us are children. And even parents who deeply love their children don't always get it right. For both all of us who are children and some of us who are parents, we know that love can often be whether it's intended or not, experienced as and projected as conditional on obedience. And that's not because we're making it conditional. It's usually because there's messed up stuff in us, unrighteous anger that's triggered and we pour out on our children. Disobedience sometimes triggers leaky psychological or spiritual baggage that gets in the way. As parents, we react to our own shame, exasperation, worn-out feelings. And as such, we communicate to our children that that love is conditional, that embrace, that delight in is conditional. And we have to do some work here. We have to do some idol hunting in our own hearts, some Holy Spirit healing in our own hearts to address this. God always delights in is always patient, is always kind, generous, and gentle with his children. Wrap your head around that, especially if you're a parent. 
you think back, oh my gosh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned in big ways as a parent. Now, I would encourage you, if you are wrestling through that stuff, don't do it alone. We have pastors, elders, deacons. The whole point of pastoral care is to listen, to hear you pour that stuff out. The whole point of spiritual direction is to point you to God. We do that in community. We're all messed up puppies. We need one another. Be vulnerable. Come forward. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this passage. So the first piece of bread is we ideally love children and obedience is God's love language. So let's talk a minute about love language because that's important. When I was growing up, every Mother's Day, my sister and I would go to the kitchen. We would get out two fairly stale pieces of bread. We'd find a can of baked beans somewhere in the back of the fridge. We'd heat it up to barely lukewarm, cook a couple of eggs, not properly, throw them all on a plate and take them up to my mum and say, Happy Mother's Day. And she choked it down because she knew that we were expressing our love to her. Our love language was lukewarm baked beans on stale toast and runny eggs that weren't fully cooked. Another image I want you to get to is, and some of you have young children who can barely stand, and they're learning to walk, and they stand up, and they start staggering to you, and they fall over, and they can't quite get there. But what is the expression on the child's face? I'm coming to you, Mommy. I'm coming to you, Daddy. What is the expression on your face? You can do it. Come on, you can do it. Is the walk perfect? Are we talking here about athletes at Olympic level? Absolutely not. But the delight on the children's face, the delight on the face of the parent is starting to express the love languages undergirding, undergirding the obedience that we're looking for. So God's love language has a fragrance to it, just like my mum's and dad's and all of you as parents' love language has a fragrance to it. And we, we see that in Micah 6, 6 to 8. Because you say, they talks here about in verses 1 this fragrant offering and sacrifice to God that Jesus did on the cross as an expression to the Father. And interestingly enough, that fragrant offering is rejected in Micah 6. What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before his exalting God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, those nice smelly burnt offerings to God, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased? And it goes on and on and on until it gets to the verse we know, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. God, you see, all of those things are actually in the law. This is God's love language, in fact. To do all those sacrifices, to burn those incestors in the Old Testament was God's law, and that was an expression of love to the Father in obedience if your heart was in the right place. But if your heart wasn't in the right place, then those things stunk. They were, they were reviled. God reviled them. They made him throw up and vomit. They were worse, much, much worse than cold bread and, and uh, stale bread and cold baked beans. So it's really important for us to remember that God's love language has a fragrance to it and it's the heart attitude that matters. Obedience is not, that is not an expression of love, stinks. Obedience that is not an expression of love stinks. Now by, by saying that, I don't mean that you have to be in some sort of kumbaya state of, of imposed spiritual bliss. Life can be really hard. 
The choices you need to make can be really difficult. You can be suffering and struggling, and it can feel hard and difficult. But if you make that choice faithfully, that's an expression of love. This is not, what would you call it, hallmark love. This is real love, which is hard and difficult and faithful. So the first piece of bread is that we are dearly loved children and obedience is God's love language. The second piece of bread is found in verses 8 to 14. The other side of the sandwich, meat, that we're going to look at later. And if we look at verse 8, we see we're to live as children of the light. We need to be, and so we see that we're told to be who we are. So in other words, this idea of being loved children of God and being children of light is running as a correction here because we're being told to live as children of the light. Now, why would you say live as children of the light if verses 8 to 14 have just implied that there's only one way to be, that you have to be perfect, that perfection is, is the only standard you can met? There's actually an instruction here to do something. It's an ongoing verb in the Greek. It's not, a, it's not a do this and that's the end of the story. It's a work at, constantly live as. And that gets uh, expounded further in verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Obedience here is becoming a refining process. Uh, it's not a one-time ask of God. Hey, tell me once, God. Tell me what to do. Tell me once, and I'll just go do it. I'll do it for the rest of my life. Good stuff. No, there's actually an implied ongoing engagement with God. There's a sense that uh, it's not that we have to be perfect, but that we have to constantly ask God, where do you want me to be? It's not that we have to be perfect, but we need to try to live as children in the light. There's an ongoing, continuous nature to this. And then we read in verses 11 to 13. I'll read them out to you. Um, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And then in verse 13, but everything exposed by the light comes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And now, here we're being told to expose what is ugly about us. Don't be afraid of it. So we're talking here about the difficult things that we feel embarrassed and ashamed to expose. Then actually, we would do well to just say, hey, I struggle with this, whether that is sexual addiction or whether that is a personality trait. Uh, whatever that is that gets in the way, it would be a good idea to bring it out again. Go see a deacon. Go see a pastor. Go talk to an elder. Let them listen and point. Provide pastoral care and spiritual direction for you. So we expose the ugly. We do some idol hunting in community and we do some Holy Spirit healing and you don't do it alone. So therefore, obedience, we see, is not this perfectionism that's been laid out as we first read verses 3 to 7, but it is, in fact, an ongoing process, a process of refinement, a refining process. We are being refined. And here's what I think is most ironic about this. Uh, just yesterday, someone came up to me and I said, how are you doing? Just a friendly comment. And they then proceeded to tell me, you know what? I'm not doing so well. Life is pretty hard, and I'm realizing there's a whole lot of stuff inside me which is leaking out everywhere. And, you know, one response to that might be, oh my gosh, 
another congregant who's messed up. But, but actually, the, the reality is, this is a demonstration of maturity. This is someone who's coming forward and following the advice that we find in the Scripture and saying, let me bring this stuff into the light. Let me not be afraid to be broken, to be a messed up puppy. Let me deal with this rightly in community. So the most mature among us are the ones that are willing to come out and bring our baggage into the light, to let it be refined and healed in that context. But then we move on to the last part of the second sandwich, which is this idea of the hymn. And you ask, why is that a hymn? Well, it's not in Scripture anywhere else. So the assumption of this little song at the end of this part is that it was a hymn that the first church sung. And in fact, for those who are curious about these things, the, uh, the word... Uh, uh, so where is the hymn? The word sleeper and dead actually rhyme. So it would have been in, in the original language. So, or there, there's a, a, a song rhythm, as you would find in the, in the Greek, if you were singing that. So... Uh, so we think this is a hymn. So that's a message to all you guys who are in worship because I often feel that we learn more about our theology from what we sing than what we hear from the pulpit. So you who are putting our music together, take that very seriously. But in this hymn, Paul is making the point that obedience leads to encounter and Christ will shine upon you. Wake up, sleep, arise from the dead. In other words, engage in this process of obedience and Christ will shine on you. And again, that is not some sort of implication of parental blessing or loving you more because uh, you've been obedient. So what's going on there uh, is that, and we see it in the clue, a clue in it, of it earlier, find out what pleases the Lord. This is about engagement, right? Obedience leads to encounter. We first of all ask him in prayer and meditation on Scripture, which, by the way, is centered on obedience, and not, hey, God, had a bad day, I'd really like this, uh, not really feeling good about that, which, by the way, those, supple those prayers are fine, but our primary posture before God in prayer has to be one of constantly help me be it, obedient, constantly help me work out how to fit my story into your story. Just as there's a relational act in this prayer and meditation of scripture, there is a relational act in this do. Pray, meditate, then do. Do is another word for obedience. Do what God has asked you to do. There's a rhythm here, a discipline here, the rhythm and discipline of prayer, the rhythm and discipline of meditating on scripture, and the rhythm and discipline of obedience. So we see then that prayer, meditation, and obedience are all gifts of a rhythm or discipline or encounter that God has given to us. So the second sandwich slice is this. Obedience is the gift of a refining rhythm of encounter. So the two sandwiches, the two pieces of bread that we are going to use to interpret this passage in the middle are one, we are dearly loved children and obedience is God's love language and the second piece of bread, obedience is a gift of refining rhythm and encounter. So let's jump then into verses 3 to 7. I read them once, so I won't read them again. But they come across, don't they, as very strong meat. They come across as if they don't really belong between this beautiful passage of Christ's sacrificial love 
and this idea of walking in the light, they seem harsh and judgmental. So is this just some passage that someone dropped in the middle, or does this passage belong in our sandwich? Is this a love language obedience in this passage? Is this an encounter obedience? And the answer is yes. And the text makes it clear when we look a little deeper. When you look at the second part of verse 4, which are out of place, you might ask the question, out of place in what? These behaviours are out of place in what? They're out of place, and go back to verse 3, of being God's holy people. Synonymous with verse 1, dearly loved children. Synonymous with verse 8, children of the light. And then you look at verse, the last part of verse C. Instead of doing all this, rather be in a state of thanksgiving. And see here we see the language of encounter. So again, we're seeing that this passage, although it feels like it's about perfectionism, is really also about starting place of being a child of God and an engagement or encounter through discipline. So we might say that beloved children, children of light, God's holy people, respond in obedience as an expression of thanksgiving, as an expression of encounter. Now, if we read verses 6 and 7 like this, and I will read those because they're, they're pretty heavy. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Do not be partners with them. And I'll go back to 5.2. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And you might say then, what's going on here? That sounds super harsh because we've just said... So, in verse 6 and 7, we see that Paul is identifying two groups of people. And he's using obedience here not as a determinant, but an identifying symptom. Let me say that again. He is using obedience here not as, an as a determinant, but an identifying symptom. So there are two categories, two categories in this text. There are children of God and there are people who we would call idolatrous. And so you fall, as children of God, we're supposed to read this passage and say Paul is saying that the smell of the fragrance of Christ's obedience to the Father on the cross is now the smell that we have in the nostrils of the Father. The cross is not, Jesus, not just Jesus' love language to the Father. It is a Trinitarian God's love language to us. And just as that fragrance of Christ's perfect love is seen by God, we are covered in that fragrance and seen by God not as adulterers, but we are defined as children of God. So, Paul's point here is this. As children of God, we are not defined by our sin, but by Christ's work which makes us children of God. Christ defines, obedience refines. Okay, Christ defines, obedience refines. And so we see as you read this passage, you are one of those two things. You are either defined by Christ or you're an idolater. Because if I was to ask you, which are you... Are you a sinner or are you a child of good? Most of you would stand up and say, well, I'm both. I'm both. You would look at your own behaviours and you would say, I'm both. But the question here is not so much that you should look at your behaviours, but you look at 
who you are. And you're either, Paul is saying, one of two things. You're either a child of God, not defined by your sin, or you are not a child of God, in which case you are defined by your idolatry. So, we move on. Christ defines, obedience refines. How does this obedience refine us? Let's look at Paul's call to obedience in verses 3 and 4. And there's a straightforward progression here. Verse 3, sexual impurity, immorality, and greed. So we're acting out on lust, on covetousness towards power, position, wealth, or material things. And he's saying, that's bad. I think we mostly agree that's pretty bad. And then he goes on to say, and you're going to get there because you're playing with it. You're playing with it in your words. You're indulging these ideas in your talk and your thoughts. Don't even do that. That's verse 4. And then he compares verse, in verse 7 where he, he says, he says, therefore do not be partners with these. And he's talking about the idolatrous. And it's really important for us to realize here, we are not idolaters, we are idolatrous. We have idolatrous behavior, but we are defined as the children of God. So you can compare us as people who have behaviors which are less than great, but are children of God. We shouldn't be partnering in that idolatry with people who are defined simply as idolaters because they don't have a de definition of being children of God. So that, by the way, is not, uh, don't have anything to do with them. In, but not of. Of course we engage in the world, but we don't engage in the world in behaviors which lead us away from obedience to who we are in Christ. So this progression is really important. It's a corrective, once we understand it, it's a corrective force against deeply rooted idols. The first layer is easy to find, and we've listed some of them. Sexual addiction, anger issues, laziness, perfectionism, gossip. You can use Luther's analogy, which I really love, of a bird landing on your head. Should you let a bird land on your head? Well, you can't do much about it if the bird lands on your head, but you shouldn't let it build a nest. You should shoo it away as quickly as you, have, you can. Don't let a whole lot of other people come along and help the bird build the nest. Don't even sit there and let the bird start to build the nest. Shoo the bird away as soon as you can. And I would say, going even further, if you need to, put a hat on your head so that the bird can't even get to your head. So what are we talking about here? These are analogies, shooing the thought away when it lands on your head. Bring it into the light of community. Is that a bird on your head? We should be saying that to one another. Looks like there's a bird building a nest there. Uh, or we might want to say, I think there's a bird building a nest in my head. What do you think? Can you have a look? Can you check, in this, check this with me? So we should be working that out in community. And if you need to, like I said, wear a hat. If you're struggling with things, avoid people, places, and things that lead you into temptation. Or as scripture tends to put it, if you need to, cut off the hand or pluck out the eye that causes you to sin. Put in place boundaries that help you be faithful and obedient. Now, they're the superficial ones, but the deeper layers are not as easy to find. And I think for most of us, the deeper layers are when we're looking for significance in the world or the kingdom of God. And, and in fact, they're the same thing because God has dominion over everything, right? And we, we have a tendency 
to let the means justify the ends, if we think, it, if we, think we can justify the ends as being aligned with God's plan, and we think it might bring a little bit of glory to ourselves. We can move a little too quickly. We can be a little too unhumble. We cannot care so much about relationships. We can push through in ways which are mildly destructive. And there's some diagnosis for this. One is when we let the means justify the ends. Why don't I act, you might ask in Micah, constantly and simply in obedience. Love, uh, act justly, love mercy and walk humbly. Would that be the way that you would describe yourself? As someone who frames themselves around, immerses themselves in their prayer life and their scripture life and their doing is aimed at acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly. And the second thing you can do is, where and what am I willing to manipulate? Where am I willing to be outcome-driven rather than obedience-driven? Or where or what am I trying to project about myself? How am I trying to seek glory for myself rather than for the kingdom of God? How am I letting glory-seeking and, and outcome-driven behaviours, which are manipulative, get in the way of being obedient? So, obedience ultimately then, because we have to wrestle with this stuff, being deeply obedient, whether you like it or not, means being constantly a person of prayer and scripture meditation about what it means to write your story into the kingdom of God's story, that big process of salvation, sanctification, and glorification. It means rooting out the idols within us, seeking Holy Spirit healing. It's a, it's a permanent process of engagement and refinement. So obedience ultimately leads to the restoration of dependence, that thing we pushed away so long. We've talked about all the way through the book of Ephesians. Submission and dependence, they're beautiful things. We don't like them until we start to experience them and then they become beautiful. And it leads to, and we haven't got time to unpack this, although I wish we did, the unmarring of the Imago Day. It restores us to a place where we reflect much more completely the glory of God. So, the point of the meat of the sandwich boiled down to a catchy little phrase, which I hope you can unpack in your heads as you remember it, is Christ defines, obedience refines. So in conclusion, encounter through obedience does not contradict grace, nor endorse works righteousness. Obedience is the practice, the rhythm of submission, of acknowledging who God is and who we are in relationship to him. It's when obedience is lived out through that lens, obedience acts as worship that leads to encounter. Just as God has given us the gift of music to praise him, he has given us the gift of obedience to praise him. When we smell the fragrance of Christ's love for us, offering himself as a sacrifice, we are Holy Spirit empowered to be obedient. And these practices or rhythms of obedience Wake us up, like, like the text says. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. They wake us up to who Christ is. Obedience is how we sing choruses of hallelujah with our lives.
But remember, remember the sandwich. We are dearly loved children, and obedience is God's love language. Christ defines, obedience refines, and obedience is the gift of a refining rhythm of encounter. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, which is so beautiful. And it is our fallen eyes and fallen ears which read these texts with fear and intrepidation, with feelings of perfectionism and inadequacy. But Father, you have also given us your Holy Spirit to bring truth of your love, of Christ's obedience which has restored us, of our place as loved children, as greatly loved children, of holy people set apart for you, of children who walk in the light. This is who I defined as, and you are constantly refining us. Help us to find that through the gift of obedience which you have given us to. Help us, as you say in the text yourself, to be who you have made us to be, to experience you as we were created to experience you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.